Well, good morning to all of you. It's uh, wonderful to be back with you. I've missed you greatly. It's been uh, three Lord's Days since we've been together. And I want to thank Chris Brunziel, Shane Kelly, and Chaz Anderson for filling the pulpit so capably as they have. I look forward to even sitting down with them and talking details about their messages and being so encouraged and edified and built up in the faith. We are grateful to the Lord that he gives us each other and the opportunity also to celebrate the Lord's table as we have now done and also for the music we enjoy, the songs that we sing, the leadership of our brother Joel Bautista as he has led us now in communion and as we focus our minds and hearts on the Word of God. There are many of you here in person, many of you outside, some of you by way of live streaming, and we are grateful uh, in these times where we can um, sort of gather together, shall we say, but we are grateful for that. While I was gone and in preparation for continuing on in Second Thessalonians, we've really just started first couple of verses and the first message uh, in that book exposition. But as I was away, I was meditating and pondering on a particular truth of the Scripture that has so captured my heart. I want to bring you a message, not only today, but I suspect, uh, knowing me over the next several weeks, um, it's all in my heart. I don't have any notes before me because this has gripped me. This has really gripped me. And this has been something that I've thought about going even back last summer into the fall season as well. And now as we embark through winter and just about very, very close to the springtime, the title of this message and the ensuing messages of this little mini-series before we get, get back into 2 Thessalonians is the fear of man versus the fear of God. The fear of man versus the fear of God. I've been thinking very much about this subject and I want to bring it to you not just because of what Scripture says about these things, but also to help clear up some confusion in the church about this matter of the fear of man. Now, let me say at the outset, you're going to hear me say that the fear of man, of course, is a temptation for all Christians. And even if you've been counseled or even heard in counseling circles about this matter of helping people and teaching people regarding the fear of man, it is something that often beleaguers Christians because of this concept of fearing what man thinks about them. And that, of course, can be a sin of Christians. It can be an area of the Christian life in which uh, people who profess to know the Lord can struggle 
and sometimes greatly struggle. But I want to show you from the Scripture that this matter of the fear of man is much larger than Christians struggling with the idea of fearing what man thinks, what man thinks about them, what man thinks about God, what man thinks about when Christians are battling this idea of the fear of man versus the fear of God. And I want to say at the outset, please do not misunderstand me. Don't be confused about what I'm saying. Because what I will say in these series of messages is something that speaks far more of Christians merely grappling with the fear of man in their hearts or their actions, but the concept as the Bible teaches it, what is the fear of man generally speaking? What does the Bible say generally about the fear of man? And of course, one cannot merely talk about the fear of man without talking also about the fear of God. Now, I'm also going to be saying in this series several times so that no one is confused that the fear that I'm talking about, this fear of man as over against the fear of God, is not necessarily related to the Scripture passages, although there is some relation to it, about what the Bible teaches about being afraid, about being afraid or having fright, or dreading something. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about that kind of fear. When man, or mankind in general, or even believers in particular, are scared of something, they have fear, or worry, or anxiety about this, that, or the other. Perhaps even in our day, a kind of fear uh, about one's health, uh, a fear about plagues or pestilence or viruses. And certainly, this has been uppermost in the minds of many people around the world, including those in the United States, regarding their physical health, uh, regarding what is happening in our world, regarding one's health. But I'm not going to be talking about those things. I'm not going to be talking about fear and worry and anxiety as it relates to someone's physical life. Or perhaps even what besets Christians often regarding their spiritual life, regarding fear and worry and anxiety. All of those things, of course, are in the Scripture. Uh, Probably one of the most oft-repeated commands of the Bible is to fear not. Do not fear. But that will not occupy us in large measure. What will occupy us in large measure is this concept of the fear of man versus the fear of God as it relates to the concept of the fear of man, meaning that someone is an unbeliever. And that the fear of God is what Scripture teaches when it does talk about fear as it relates to someone being a believer. We would say it in the New Covenant age as someone who is a Christian, as over against someone who's not a Christian. Someone who is saved as over against someone who is 
unsaved. Someone who is righteous as over against someone who is unrighteous. That's my meaning when I'm talking about this contrast between the fear of man and the fear of God. I want to show you this. And I want to show you over the next several Sundays, this being the first, that the idea of fear in the way that I'll present it to you from the Scripture, and particularly this idea of the fear of man, is a most important subject. Because it's not just a Christian grappling with ideas about what man thinks of them, though that is a kind of fear of man, as I've already said. But as an umbrella term, the fear of man is talking about someone who is not a Christian, who is not saved, who is not righteous, and who exalts and reveres himself or other human beings as over against someone who lives consciously and characteristically in the fear of God. That is, that someone who lives under the fear of God, while they could be stumbling through that fear, is nevertheless consciously and constitutively saying, I love God, I revere God, I honor God, I magnify his name, I live under his lordship, that is a way of saying that someone as a Christian is living as though they care more about what God thinks in their life as over against what man thinks about their life. That's what we're going to be talking about. That's the, that's the brief intro of what we're going to talk about. In fact, we're going to talk more about not just the fear of man, but two other places in our Bibles where that idea of the fear of, dot, 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 the fear of, dot, 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 is also speaking about the fear of man. But it places a little bit of a different emphasis on this idea of the fear of man. In fact, you could sum up this series by saying what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about three kinds of fear that are all constitutive of the one thing, the fear of man. And the first one, of course, we need to talk about is the fear of man. But the second is the fear of death. The fear of death. And then the third kind of fear that we're going to be talking about, all related to each other and all coming from the same essence, is the fear of punishment upon death. Because the Bible makes it very, very clear to us that the concept of a person who is given over in the characteristic nature of their life, who is given over to the fear of man, has, in addition to such fear, the fear of death. And they also have the fear of punishment upon death. And we're going to look at these passages, and we're going to look at them carefully. That's why we're going to take our time. I don't know if this is... uh, Two messages or six? We'll just have to see. I don't know. There's so much in my heart about this because I fear, no pun intended, I fear that there are multitudes of believing people who don't understand these things as the Bible teaches them and therefore 
They can use categories like, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm struggling with the fear of man. Be careful of such language. Be careful of such language. Because if we're not careful, we can slip into seeing that you and I as professing Christians are both fearing man and fearing God at the same time, and the Bible doesn't teach anything of the kind. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to be talking, yes, about the fear of punishment upon death and the fear of death. Those will come later. But this morning, I want to introduce us to the subject, and I don't know how many messages we'll get through it. Depends on the time that we have. Let's talk about the fear of man. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29. Now, this is the first place in our Bibles where this concept of the fear of man as a phrase, not related texts about it. We're actually going to go backwards a little bit in our study of the Old Testament before we go forward. But I want you to see that as a phrase, and particularly in our English translations, as a phrase, the first of these three fear ofs is listed for us in our Bibles here in Proverbs 29. And here's what it says. Look at verse 25. Proverbs 29, 25. This is a case of what we could call Hebrew parallelism. Hebrew parallelism. And in this particular case of Proverbs 29, 25, it's contrasting Hebrew parallelism. And here's what it says. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man, you see that phrase, and it's going to become so very familiar to us. I'm going to be saying it at least a hundred times. The fear of man lays a snare, or perhaps your English translation might be a trap. The fear of man lays a trap or a snare. But notice the contrast in the parallelism. But, that's our key to knowing that this is contrastative, But whoever, which means anybody on the planet, whoever trusts in the Lord is what? Safe. You might even say secure. The fear of man lays a snare, a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe or secure. Now what is is this wise old sage, Solomon, what is... What is he talking about? What is he referring to? Well, you have to understand that in this Old Testament imagery, in the wisdom literature particularly, but it's not limited to that, the contrast between someone who is fearing man and someone who is fearing the Lord is tantamount to saying that the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that someone who is an unbeliever fears man. And someone who is a believer fears the Lord. Now, maybe we need to stop and say, well, could you help define us uh, for us this term fear? And as I've said, put out of your minds for a minute the idea of fright or being scared, uh, having 
anxiousness about your life, either spiritually or physically. That, that certainly may be a part of this, and we'll find some passages that seem to also crisscross with this di- idea of being scared. But when the Bible uses this idea of the fear of man or trusting in the Lord, or you could even say the fear of the Lord brings safety. Not just those who trust, because the idea of fear in our Bibles, when you take it to the zenith level, when you take it to the top, and you allow it to trickle down in our understanding, the idea of fear is something like this, who do you revere? It's fear in terms of the one whom you revere. You might say it like this, uh, to revere is to laud to worship, to magnify, to have an all-consuming desire for. You know, we talk about the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord is to, uh, to laud him, uh, to worship him, um, to fear him in the sense that you and I have a consuming passion as believers, and particularly for us in the New Covenant age, believers in Jesus Christ, we are those who are desirous of fearing God in the sense that we magnify him. I'll put it in easy terms for you. You might see in Proverbs 29, 25, this beginning concept, and of course it goes before that and it will come after that, but it's the idea, and if we want a definition and if it's something memorable to you, the idea of the fear of the Lord is the concept of holy reverence and healthy dread. Holy reverence and healthy dread. The holy reverence aspect of the fear of God is the concept that you and I see the holiness of his person. We see the brilliance of his majesty. We see the honor of his name. We see the full effulgence of his glory. And the Bible talks about Moses seeing the glory of God, and it even did something physically to him, didn't it? It, it turned his, his face, his, his hair, and undoubtedly his beard to a kind of whiteness because the glow, the glory, was the kind of thing that was brilliantly shining on the face of Moses because he was standing in the very presence of a holy God. And therefore, he was revering God. Now, yes, there is a sense of fright, and certainly as Moses stood before the Great One, the Almighty God, Yahweh our Lord, certainly Moses would have been frightened to a degree, right? But that's not what our concept of fear is leading us to. Our concept of fear fear is leading us to to the idea that there is a holy reverence. You revere someone like this holy one because you recognize who he is in light of who you are. I mean, it's no wonder when Jesus calmed the storm and Peter in the boat is is removing himself as far away as he can from Jesus and he says, get away from me, Lord, because I am a what? Sinful man. He 
only in the presence of the storm calmer sees holiness. And because of that that comparison, he sees only his sin. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about the fear of God. I want to talk for a moment about this concept of a healthy dread. Now, perhaps this is where the concept of fright might be most noted. When you're talking about a healthy dread, you're talking about the almighty God who is sinless, who is powerful, who is almighty in his intelligence and almighty in such power so that when you are and I might well be standing in the presence of the Almighty like Moses did, you have this sense of a dread of all dreads because you're seeing your sin and you're seeing his holiness. But notice the adjective that I've attached to it, healthy dread. Because you see, if, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you do know Jesus Christ by faith and your sins have been forgiven, the sense of the holy righteousness of God and our unholiness, our unrighteousness has seen our sins being atoned for by Jesus Christ himself, which means that we should never have to fear the judgment of God even if we have the healthy dread of God. We have a healthy dread of God because our sins are forgiven. And even though, like John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 1, when he was standing there receiving the vision, seeing the exalted Christ, the glorified Christ, and all of the descriptions about the holiness and the magnifying of Christ and his brilliance and his sinlessness and his lordship, no wonder the Bible says, and John fell down like a dead man. but it was in the most glorious and wonderful sense because Jesus had something for him to do. Stand up, take your pen and write what I'm going to give you, my revelation, which of course is John's revelation. So there there is a sense of dread, yes, but for us, because of the cross of Christ, because of the redemption of our bodies and our souls, because of that, We have a dread of God, but it is in the most healthy sense because no longer is he our judge, but he is our heavenly father who does, yes, discipline us, but the discipline, even though for the moment seems excruciating, after such a moment, it brings the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So we have a a holy reverence and a healthy dread of this God in the most proper and incredibly encouraging sense. He's no longer our judge. He's our father. And Jesus, our elder brother. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, over against that kind of fear, the fear of God, is the fear of man. Look back at verse 25 of Proverbs 29. Now you know something, something of the contrast. So when this is contrastative, when it says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe, in what sense am I trusting and in what sense am I safe? Well, even for an old covenant believer, you were safe 
because you were a believer. You're safe. You, you may not have known that the Messiah who was to come is Jesus of Nazareth, but you did know this. A Messiah is coming, and when he comes, we will all be safe. We'll be secure. I trust in the Lord. I laud the Lord. I glorify the Lord. I reverence the Lord. I don't have fear, but I do revere the Lord because trusting in him makes me both now and in eternity secure and safe. That's a a description of a believer. Whether you're an old covenant believing person or a new covenant believing person because the cross of Christ and the work that he did on Calvary also retroactively was applied to every Old Testament believer so that the fear of the Lord and trusting in such a Lord creates the safety through the cross of Christ when that cross is looking backwards. And for all of us, as 21st century believers, we have the same thing. The cross of Christ is actually applied to our account looking forward. If the cross was around 33 AD, and if we're in the 20th and 21st centuries as believers, that means that the cross proactively is applied to our account. Reactively applied to the account of all of those who believe and trusted alone in Yahweh. Do you see it? And so all of that freight... All of that biblical and doctrinal and theological and soteriological freight that I just explained is what it means in the latter part of verse 25 when it says, whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now contrast that with the earlier portion of verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare. It's not just talking about a believer who sometimes falls into a fearfulness of what man is or can do to him or her. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is contrasting the concept of a person who does not fear the Lord. He fears man. He fears what man can do. He he lauds himself as man. And he fears what other men can do to him, negatively speaking. Perhaps he might even say, I'm fearing man in the sense that mankind can bring to me other men, other women, they can bring to me what I want. I have goals, I have aspirations, I have desires, and I will be looking to man, not God, for the fulfillment of such desires. So I live in the sphere of manism. I don't fear, live in the fear of the Lord and his ways. That's what it's talking about. And I've said to you before, I had the privilege of preaching, studying the Proverbs for about nine years of my life. And as I was preaching them all the way from Proverbs 1.1 to Proverbs 31.31 at the end, I was, I was, consumed for that decade about getting this book right, the book of Proverbs. Because sometimes 
we can read the book of Proverbs and we miss things like what I'm describing and we miss it in the sense of the book of Proverbs becomes, even for New Testament Christians, moralisms. Moralisms. They, they, are, they are moral statements that help me get through the day. Well, if, if you think that, these verses certainly project a morality, but often, like in this contrasting way, Proverbs 29, 25 is evangelistic, my friends. This is evangelism here. This is a kind of evangelism that says, if you are a person who wants to be in heaven, in glory, with God forever and ever, then you must trust in the Lord, and if you do, you'll be safe. But if you're a person who fears more what man is and does and you use man for your own enjoyments, for your own pleasures, for your own ideas, for your own aspirations, if you in fact are not a Lord-fearer, a God-fearer, but a man-fearer, a man-lover, a man-lauder, then you've been ensnared. You're in a trap, and that trap is sin, and that sin will send you directly to hell. And if you look at Proverbs 29, not just verse 25, but for instance, look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. This is another, this is another contrast. My ESV translation says, bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. Is that what your Bible says? Now, there's no mistaking that those two verses are found in Proverbs 29. And remember, these just aren't moralisms, you know, a proverb a day keeps the devil away. This is, this is tied in a chapter in the providence of God as they've been arranged by God's providence to teach us things, and there is a connection between verse 10 and verse 25. And it is so interesting to me, my friends, that when verse 25 talks about the fear of man laying a snare or a trap, and verse 10 talking about bloodthirsty men hating one who is blameless and seeking the life of the upright, that's a description of a person who is lauding man, who is exalting man, who lives in the sphere, not of God, but of men. And one of the things that is so tragically the case when men and women live in the sphere, not of the Lord, but of themselves, friction, anger, volatility, and even murder takes place. And what is so interesting about verse 10, the bloodthirsty man hates one who is righteous or blameless and seeks the life of the upright. In my ESV little Bible here that I'm using, the cross-referencing, which of course is not inspired, but the ESV editors believe that if they put a single column in the middle or if you have a Bible that has a column in the middle or a column in the right, and they have these cross-referencing verses, right? It's helpful. 
doesn't mean they are inerrant, but these ESV Bible translation editors and the publishers of this Bible thought undoubtedly that verse 10 is talking about, of course, murder in general and hatred in general, but it might even be talking about what happened with the first murder itself because the ESV editors say, cross-reference Cain in Genesis 4. So let's do that. Let's go over to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Of course, we know that in chapter 3, there is the fall of mankind. This is the fall of Adam and Eve. And of course, one of the... uh, beings that's front and center in this dialogue in chapter 3 of Genesis is the serpent. In fact, in our English translation, he's the third word used in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent. The serpent. Satan. Who, if we have enough time, will see me taking you to John chapter 8, which says that Satan is a murderer from the beginning. And he's a liar. And here he is, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And for the sake of time, we don't go through all of chapters 3 and 4, but I want to give you some highlights for the sake of what we're really talking about. Because remember, Genesis is the book of beginnings, right? And because Genesis is the book of beginnings, a lot of firsts happen here. And of course, one of the things that our God graciously and lovingly and wisely, even with the serpent doing all of his dastardly deeds, warns us about and warns Adam and Eve about particularly is that if the the serpent tries to deceive you, you better watch out. And the serpent does that and... He does it in a precise way. Look at verse 5. For God knows, this is the serpent talking, for God knows that when you eat of it, that is the fruit of the garden, if your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now God, of course, was being maligned, impugned by the serpent because the serpent was trying to say about our loving God that God doesn't want you to be like him because he knows good and evil, which is a lie because what is happening here is that the serpent is trying to deceive them into thinking that you will know good and evil in a different way than what God is saying. God is saying that if you, in fact, know good and evil, that means you'll know it experientially. And he wants to keep us from knowing evil experientially. And the serpent is trying to deceive. And is it no wonder then in verse 7 then, then the eyes of both of them after they sinned were opened and they knew. They knew that they were naked. They knew evil experientially. Which was the very thing that God was giving them the choice not to do. But they did. And of course, when they did that, The battle is on. 
The battle is on. The battle in mankind's history is on in what we might call the long war against God. The long war against God. And what is a part of that long war? Murder. Murder and and hatred. And, And in a sense, no sooner had the world been created and no sooner than the serpent deceived Eve who along with her husband ate of such a fruit and they sinned and they knew experientially that they were naked and God graciously allowed death, death of an animal, to cover them with skins, which prefigures, of course, an atonement. And yet, because sin has entered the world, look at what happens in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. That means they had sexual relations, and she conceived and bore whom? What does the Bible say? Cain. Folks, if you don't get anything else out of this series of messages, including the first message today, I'm going to be showing you in this series that the arch example of murderous hatred, according to the Bible, is Cain himself. You look it up. Take your concordance. And you look up every reference to Cain in your Bible. And you will see from Genesis to Jude references to Cain who is the arch example of one who fears man. He's a man-fearer. He's not a God-fearer. He's not a Lord-lauder. He's a serpent-follower. He's an unrighteous man. He's evil, and the Bible, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses to use his name over and over and over again as the arch example of murderous hatred. In fact, I'll even show you one of those verses in our series that even calls him and what he did and who he is constitutively the way of Cain. The way of Cain. He has a way. He has a disposition, he has a character, he has a constitution, and those acts which flow from such a constitution is a person who did what? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 1. She bore Cain. She said, I've gotten a man or a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And then this amazing statement in our Bibles, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now, of course, a lot of pages, a lot of trees have given up their lives for commentators saying, well, was it Abel's offering because it was an animal offering? Was it it Cain's offering that God didn't regard because it was of the ground? Um, Perhaps it is. And I say, 
Not at all. Not at all. I'll tell you what it was. And I'll tell you, not just because I'm so smart, I'm just following the plot line of the Bible on this guy, Cain. And First John says that the reason why his offering wasn't regarded by God was because, First John says, Cain was of the evil one. He was of the evil one. He was a murderous, hating man who was not righteous like his brother Abel, which also the Bible uses Abel as one of those, though slain, as one of those who gave up his blood to his brother, is also the paradigmatic idea of the righteous man. And Cain is therefore also the paradigmatic picture of the unrighteous man. And the Bible just follows this in its plot line all the way through, almost in the shadow of the very book of Revelation, telling us, here's Abel, here's Cain. Here's righteousness, here's wickedness. Here's love, here's hate. Here's life, here's murder. And when you track all of this, and when you look at it in terms of the fear of man versus the fear of God, you find a contrasting parallel of epic proportions. It even defines who's a Christian and who's not, who's a saved person and who's not, who's righteous and who's not, who's loving and who's not. This is, this is an amazing thing that the Bible begins to portray for us in the very first pages of the book of Genesis. You say, well, what about the, the fear of man? I mean, I don't, I don't really see that here. How can it be tied to Cain? Well, look what happens. When the Lord, it says, had no regard for Cain, the Bible says, so Cain was very what? Angry. You see, his, his unrighteousness His ungodliness was seething on the inside, and it came now to the surface. And the Bible says his countenance or his face fell, dropped. It was in his heart, and now it's on his face. And then the Lord, as the divine counselor, verse 6 says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? He's actually graciously attempting to lead Cain to understand what he's done in the killing of his brother so that he might repent. The, the, the divine counselor is leading him to a place of understanding that if, in fact, you do rightly, if you are righteous, if you do righteous deeds, then will not your countenance be lifted up? No wonder the Lord says in verse 9, where is Abel, your brother? He gets right to the point. Where is Abel, your brother? Of course, God knows where Abel is, right? He's he's searching, though, for Cain to come up with a righteous response. And the righteous response should have been something like this. I killed him. I murdered him. The Bible says Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
First murder in the Bible. First murder in the Bible. And oh, how many since then. Crimes of passion. Crimes of premeditation where a life is taken. How many? How many? Well, according to Jesus himself, and we'll see it later, in Matthew 23, he actually says, he, 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 he sort of puts all murders together. And he says, you evil men, speaking of the scribes and Pharisees, you evil men, you are responsible because of what you have in your heart. You're all responsible from the first murder onward, including my own. And he says, from the blood of Abel. He actually mentions Abel's name as the first one who was murdered. And he, and he sort of groups all murders into one nasty, evil, wicked sack. And he says, you're responsible for them all. And so are all wicked, hateful, murderous people. You see how the Bible's just sort of gathering it all up? And the plot line is going to take us virtually to every murderous, hateful, hating person who kills another. I can't imagine the murder rate of all the abortions in the history of the world. It's all in the same bag. It's all in the same sack. It's all being bound up and God remembers every single one of them. Cain's in a bad way. And according to verse 10, or the latter part of verse 9, he says to the Lord God, I mean, this is, this is, the, this is the height of arrogance. He, he answers the question, where is Abel your brother, by saying, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, can you imagine talking to your heavenly father like that? Can you imagine talking to the Almighty like this? I don't know. You think, you think I'm in control of him? Do you, do you think uh, I'm his keeper? Do you, do you think I'm responsible? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's very interesting. Adam's Hebrew name, Avam, might actually have its derivation in the word red or redness. Because remember, the Lord fashioned and shaped him from the dust of the ground. And now when someone's life is over, it goes back to the ground. That's why we bury people. There's a there's a sense in which God is saying, your brother's blood cries to me from the redness of the earth. It, it, it's a crying to me of recompense. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you, Cain, work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. It won't be kind to you. 
this idea of creation and the human creature now in a battle even for the work of the earth, even for the tilling of the ground. This is, this is the first commentary of all of the things that mankind now has been judged and received. And for the man, the woman, childbirth, labor, it's going to be hard for you. Man, you're going to have thorns and thistles. And now God is saying, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. It's going to be hard. It's going to be back-breaking. You're, you're going to barely survive. This is the curse of sin upon the earth, and this is the curse of the first murder at your hands, Cain. And then he goes further. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. You're going to be a restless wanderer. Why? I mean, what, what's the... What's the divine commentary here? What, why, why are you going to be a restless wanderer wherever you go? Because he has the fear of man. Because he fears what man's going to do. He, he fears that because he took his own brother Abel's life, that someone will take his own. That's the way he lives. That's, that's, that's the pattern of murderers. They continue to kill, yes, but they also wonder at every turn who might or will kill them. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You see the fear of man in that? Of course that's the fear of man. And and for someone who ruthlessly and recklessly took his own brother's life and now he's concerned about somebody else taking his life? My punishment is too great to bear? He goes on to say, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. Isn't that interesting? Will not, if you do right, your face be lifted up? And now he's saying to the Lord God, You've driven me away And from the ground, where my brother Abel's blood is crying to the heavens, and from your face I shall be hidden. It's as though God says, here's your punishment. I will remove the countenance of my face of blessing and favor. And then Cain says, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Do you you see it there? Do you see the fear of man? He should be saying, I repent in dust and ashes. I want to be a follower of Yahweh. I don't want to be a restless wanderer. How can I repay? What is the recompense? What should I do? What can I do? Can I fall on my face in front of your face and seek ultimate forgiveness for what I've done, killing my own blood brother? He doesn't. He doesn't at all. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, and this is God's mitigation of of murder and hatred just running rampantly all over the earth, I'm going to put a a kind of mark on him. We don't know exactly what it is. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord 
and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I think there's a double entendre there. He did go away from the presence of the Lord. He went away from the divine human conversation that they were having, yes, when God pronounced the judgment. But Cain has a murderous hatred of a person, hater of a person, and therefore Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he fears man. He doesn't fear the Lord. And verse 17 says, Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. And then, of course, others were born. And then look at verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. And and just as soon as these generations go onward with with Cain and his sister wife, this this is now the newer generation's And look at verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And then, of course, our God, always the gracious one, always the loving one, allowed Adam and Eve to spire more children. And Eve bore a son and called his name Seth. And there was a godly line with Seth. For she said, did Eve, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Every time Cain is mentioned. Every time in the Bible. He's a murderer. He's a hating man. He's a killer He doesn't repent all the way to that Jude 11 passage that says, don't go the way of Cain. To Seth, verse 26, also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And then this statement, amazing statement. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, but not Cain. He did not. So, in the time we have left, I want you to see grace. I want you to see grace. Look at Genesis 6. Verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So, this is now the replenishing or at least more generations of men and women coming along in human history. And then verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Is that not sad? Do you think Cain learned any lesson? Do you think Cain stopped his murderous hatred? Not according to the Bible. And in fact, the whole world became so incessantly and overridingly wicked that God says, I'm going to have to wipe out the whole earth. Save eight persons. To which then this grace is referred to in verse 8. But Noah found favor. That's our word for grace in the eyes of the Lord. Aren't you thankful for that? Because if Noah hadn't found grace in the eyes of the Lord, you and I wouldn't be here. 
And then, of course, the flood comes on the earth and wipes everybody out except Noah's wife, his three sons, and their three wives. And you would assume, you would assume, lesson learned, that everybody now, as the generations continue to be fruitful and multiply, you would assume that everybody would say, well, I better be righteous. I better seek after this grace and favor of the Lord like Noah, like my, my ancestor, my, my father, as it were. I, I should do this. And doesn't it say in chapter 8, verse 20, that Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's post-flood, my friends. Mankind is still wicked, abominable, but God is gracious And he's not going to wipe out the earth again with a flood. And he gives Noah this covenant. We call it the Noahic covenant. I will never destroy the earth again with a flood. And he put a rainbow in the sky to make that promise clear to all of us. And and did the world respond? Did, Did persons respond with, I repent. I don't want to be a murderous hater like Cain. I don't want to have hatred in my heart. No, and yet here's the righteous one, like Abel, here's Noah, chapter 9, verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you. In other words, he's the pinnacle of God's creation and creation itself will see man and will have that dread of man because man is exalted by God to the place of being the pinnacle of creation The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. We know why. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. For every beast I will require it from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And God institutes capital punishment, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made him in his own image. God had to put a law in place to say, stop the violence, stop the murder, stop the wickedness. You say, well, did it stem the tide? Did it, did it work? No. Man's heart is only evil continually. And murders occur even up to our own day, right? So what, what Jesus has to do when he comes onto the scene and begins his public teaching ministry, he says something very, very interesting. It's not just the fact of murder that's taking place in our world and including with our prophets but it actually stems from the hatred and anger of the heart. And he turns it so internally that nobody is guiltless because even if you haven't murdered someone actually, physically, you and I have anger 
and malice in our hearts. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're about done, but this is so very important, my friends. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. From the lips of Jesus himself, and starting, of course, with Cain. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And, of course, Jesus is quoting Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. You shall not murder. One of the Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Of course, ultimately, the judgment of the taking of their own life because God had set it in place, didn't he, in, in, Matthew, in uh, Genesis chapter 9. And now here in Matthew, Jesus is reiterating such a thing. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, not just someone who actually commits murder, but someone who is angry with his brother, and you can't miss that, with his brother in the Abel and Cain motif. You cannot miss that. If you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. The judgment, even if your life isn't taken from you, but the judgment that God will not regard you in the eternity hereafter. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That's another word that he uses here. Everyone who's angry, everyone who has a liability or a libel case against his brother, and whoever says, you fool, even calling someone a non-believer, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Now, that's serious words from Jesus, serious words. No wonder he says in verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. And again, not just a fellow Israelite, although that's certainly what it means, You cannot miss Abel and Cain, Abel and Cain, Abel and Cain. If you're there at the altar and you remember you're worshiping, your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Don't continue on with your worship and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He just takes it internally and says, I'm not just talking about the fact that someone would try to say in their their, uh, false righteousness, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't murder anybody. I'm a good guy. He says, if you've been angry in your heart and if you've cast insults, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And if you call someone a fool, a a know-nothing, a a mindless person, an unbeliever, you're going to be liable to the hell of fire. And and if you've got another fellow worship opportunity with your brother and you know he has something against you, you stop your worship immediately and you go and you seek to make it right. You don't kill him. You don't murder him. You make it right with him. And then that Matthew 23 passage that I alluded to, Matthew 23 Jesus is giving invectives and woes and damnations to these scribes and Pharisees. There are several of them in this one chapter. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He says in verse 31 of chapter 23, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. 
Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. I I sent them all to you, Jesus says, and some of whom you will kill and crucify. And of course, even himself, and and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, innocent blood, so that you may come all, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. He's actually bringing up the details, the persons, the names, Abel. And then what is said, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he comes right out of that with grace, with a, with a, with a forward hand, with a reached out gesture, gesture, verse 37, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood uh, under her wings and you would not. See your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I held out my hand. I held out my hand to all of the murderous, hateful persons and I sent lovingly my prophets and my priests and my warners to warn you of impending doom and you killed them all. So, I extend my hand of grace to you all the more, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, but you would not. You wouldn't. You wouldn't respond. Why? Because you live in the fear of man. You live in that realm. You live in that sphere. It's not just what you think man is thinking of you. It's far more than that. You are in league with man. You're in league with murder and hatred. And so therefore, I bring you the gospel, the good news, through the prophets and through the teachers and through the priests, and you would not. Because you fear man, and you don't fear God. This is, this is why, beloved, there are people in our world who do what they do. Murderous hatred, they do what they do because they live in the sphere of man not in the sphere of God. We're seeing it lived out, aren't we? We're seeing it lived out in our world. We're seeing it lived out in front of us, which then reinforces to us again and again and again, I need the grace of the Lord. I need to find favor in the eyes of the Lord. I don't need his face to be removed from me. I need to get on my face and plead for the blood of Jesus Christ. I'll share with you later that the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 24, that Jesus' blood, because it's righteous and sinless and he's perfect, it says, has a better blood than Abel.
Abel was a righteous man, but he wasn't a perfect man. And Jesus' blood is what we need. And can you imagine in the divine economy of God that part of the plan, even while Cain was shedding his brother's blood and all of the blood that's been shed on the prophets and the priests and the taking of their lives and all of those persons, including the New Testament apostles and including every faithful missionary and every faithful gospeler in the history of the world, that God still decided that the blood of his own son would be shed for the forgiveness of many. That's what we took in the communion, didn't we? That blood, representative, emblematic of that blood. I mean, God could have at any point been so righteous and so holy, and if the plan had been different, stands with the gavel upon the bar of the seat of justice and said, enough, enough. The soul that sins, it shall die. And he would have been completely righteous in doing so at any point in human history. But instead, as history plays itself out, Jesus Christ, God's only son, had his blood shed for the forgiveness of everyone who would ever believe. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this, this message, this series, I trust, will be the kind of, of message that shows us even when we can lapse into fearing what a man thinks about me or what mankind itself will think about me as a worshiper of Jesus Christ. We can rely upon and fear and laud and honor and glorify and have such a holy reverence and a healthy dread that you have given us divine favor, grace, through what Jesus did when you orchestrated his own blood being shed, his own death. Father, if we are not in Christ, if we are not taking this offer of salvation in Jesus through the shedding of his own blood, then we will be judged for our sins. But if we place our confidence, our trust, our regard in you, Yahweh God, and in your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we take the offer of salvation and we receive it. We, we're like, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We, we take our, our hands and our arms and we outstretch them to receive the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would make us sons and daughters of you, Heavenly Father, who will have judged us at the cross. And even when we have fatherly discipline, when we're chastised, we know it's for our good. And we know that all judgment has been taken away because of Jesus.
And oh, now we fear you. We revere you. Our fear is not a slavish fear of man or death or punishment. It's a, it's a revering of your holiness and your love and your grace. Oh, if there's anyone here who haven't reached those hands out for the offer of forgiveness in Jesus, please do it now, right now. You and I, outside of Christ, have nothing but murderous hatred in our hearts, anger, malice, sin of all kinds. And we need the forgiveness will as we repent and believe in Jesus, that you will put us in the place of being God-fearers and not man-fearers. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.